Is God real? Many people have a lot of different excuses or reasons for not believing in God. Some say that if there is a God, we should expect him to give undeniable proof of his existence. Others say there can't be a God because of all of the evil and suffering in the world. But I suspect that most people, including, I assume, yourself, because you're here this morning, would say they believe in a God of some kind or at least are open to the idea. So the the question probably is not so much, is God real, as it is, who is God? And is God worthy of my complete trust? Is believing and acting on these words of Jesus crazy fanaticism or is it the measure of authentic human living? He said, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's quite a thing to call people to. Losing everything in the world for the sake of knowing Jesus and being recognised by Jesus on the day of judgement. You have to be pretty certain that he is who he claims to be and that he's able to do what he promises to do. One in seven Christians in the world today face persecution. They could easily avoid it. They could renounce their faith. They could convert to another religion. But they don't. They're willing to lose the whole world for the sake of knowing Jesus. Don't believe anything you hear from people who preach the prosperity gospel, which tells you that having faith in Jesus will fix all your problems and make your life easy. Jesus never promised an easy life. On the contrary, he said the difficulty and the sufferings of this life in this world will likely increase if we follow him. But he also said what we gain far outweighs anything we may lose. So the all-important matter that we face is not whether there's an intellectual argument for God, but whether the God that we know is there, has done anything to show us that he is worthy of our trust. I want to put to you two propositions this morning. The first is that the ultimate demonstration of a person's trustworthiness is that they follow through on what they say. They put into action what they've promised. The second is that God has done exactly that in Jesus Christ. 
And let me show you how we can see that in this passage that we've just heard read to us from John's Gospel. Firstly, God is worthy of our trust because his word has become a flesh and blood reality. One of the big promises that God made to the Jews in the Old Testament time was that he would dwell with them. He said, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now see how this isn't just for the Jews' sake but for the benefit of all nations. Israel had the temple. It was a symbol of God's presence among them, yet it was only symbolic. All of the the building, all of the rituals that took place in it were just pointing forward to the reality that they were yet to experience in the future. God's glory was present in the temple, but it was, so to speak, contained and out of sight, hidden behind a curtain. And they knew that really God, God cannot be contained within a temple made of human hands. But see what John says here. In Jesus, God has definitively come to dwell among us. The Word has become flesh. None of us would have time for anyone who is all words and no action. Someone who says, I'll be there, but never shows up. Well, in Jesus, God has shown up as he promised. And not in a spectacular display of words across the sky, but in such a way that he's come permanently to dwell among us. He's become one of us. He's taken on our flesh with all of its weaknesses and limitations that come with being a human creature. He hasn't lost his godness, but instead as God he has come and shared in our creatureliness. John tells us this is way different to God's presence in the temple. There he was hidden with only occasional glimpses of his glory. In Jesus, he says, we have seen his glory We've seen that Jesus is the only Son. We've seen that God, his Father, is also our Father. And we've seen that God is full of grace and truth. If you've ever wondered if there is a God or what God is like, you need go no further than Jesus. Because in Jesus, God has disclosed himself, his very heart, his very character to us. You may have trouble trusting in a God who keeps himself hidden from you, but don't fear. God is the God who has made himself known. He's the God who's not waited for us to come and find him. He has come to find us. Secondly, God is worthy of our trust because he's been speaking from the very beginning. Now, John here in verse 2, in verse, sorry, verse 15, is not John who wrote the Gospel, it's John the Baptist who prepared 
the way for Jesus. Now, John was a prophet, someone who heard from God and delivered God's message to his people. And the Old Testament is filled with a great line of prophets, at least 55 of them, and John the Baptist is the last and final one. The Jews had a tradition that said that Malachi, there at the end, in the 5th century BC, was the last prophet who would be sent before the Messianic age when the Messiah or the Christ would establish God's kingdom on earth. Yet, Malachi concluded his book with these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There would be one more prophet, he said, just like the earlier prophet Elijah, who lived in the 9th century BC, this prophet would pave the way for the one to whom all of the prophets were pointing. Jesus wasn't merely another prophet in the line of the prophets, but as we've just heard, he is the Word of God embodied. He's not a mere messenger. He is the message. Now, my wife hates it when I spring things on her at the last minute, which I often do, telling her of things that are going to happen on the actual day that it's happening. By contrast, she'll tell me what's happening months in advance and she'll remind me on a weekly basis to make sure I don't forget. Well, God has not sprung Jesus on us at the last minute. He's been speaking from the very beginning, sending his messengers, humans and angels to announce, foretell, promise and remind. Many Jews initially welcomed Jesus, following him in great crowds because they'd heard, they'd read, they'd taken to heart all of the promises in the Bible and they were longing for the day when God would send the Messiah. See what John the Baptist says about Jesus. A seemingly paradoxical statement. He says, he comes after me in time, but he's before me in rank because in actual fact, he comes before me in time. He's referring to the fact that Jesus, who was born three months after him, and appeared on the scene publicly after John the Baptist, that he is God with us, the Word made flesh, not only before John, but before all things. It's about him that all of the prophets before John spoke. And John, John is simply the icing on the prophetic cake before the real thing arrived. Thirdly, we can trust God because all that he has done has been from grace and by grace, verse 16. This little phrase, grace upon grace, means that from the very beginning, everything God has done has been out of grace. Grace is God's free, undeserved favour. It's God acting on the basis of who he is in all of his goodness instead of 
reacting to what we have done. Grace is receiving goodness that you don't deserve and with God it means receiving goodness even when we deserve the opposite. Grace upon grace means grace is the foundation and grace is the building. Grace was at the heart of the Father's plan from eternity to send his Son and grace was displayed in every way that he made sure that plan came to pass. It's no coincidence that the all-time enduring classic Christian hymn is Amazing Grace because grace is the word that sums up in total everything that God has done in relating to the world and to us. Now grace isn't a substance, it's not a power that he dispenses. Grace is God giving himself to us. To know grace upon grace is to know God. Specifically, it's to know God the Father through the Son in the power and joy of the Holy Spirit. It's from his fullness that we have received grace. He's held nothing of himself back. If you want to know how gracious, how generous, how loving God is, then you need look no further than where God hangs on a cross for you. Where he, he who said love your neighbour and love your enemy, love those who persecute you, literally put it into practice by laying down his life. So grace isn't God being nice to you and giving you good stuff, helping you when you have problems. Grace is God pouring out his very life for you. All the other gods and gurus will tell you that to love people and to love God, you need to find it within yourself. You need to produce or exemplify grace within yourself. The true God that we see in Jesus, the God whom we can trust, is grace upon grace because he has loved us to the very end. Fourthly, in verse 17, God is worthy of our trust because he has dealt definitively with the problem of our sin. Verse 17 talks about the law being given through Moses and that's popularly known by its summary in the Ten Commandments. You may have heard of them. The law was given to the Jews just after their release from slavery in Egypt and it was the terms of the covenant. In other words, it was a description of how the Jews were expected to live in light of the relationship they had with the God who had rescued them. But there's a very popular misconception about this law held by many people which is that the law is a list of things that we do in order to make ourselves good and acceptable to God. That's why many people don't like the Ten Commandments because firstly they don't feel like they need a list of rules to tell them how to be a good person. They feel they're already good in themselves. And secondly, because 
They may have experienced those rules being used to ostracise and to judge by people who have a holier-than-thou attitude, who think they've measured up to the rules. But the law wasn't given to make us good. It wasn't given even as a, a chance to demonstrate our own goodness. In Romans 3, written by Paul, who was a scholar and an expert on the law, tells us, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law came not to make us good, but to show us that we're bad. If you feel offended at that, then I'll give you a challenge. Take just one law from the Bible, one that you agree is good, and try to follow it perfectly for a whole week. Then come back next week and tell me how you went. And remember, Jesus himself said to anyone who believes they can rely on their good works, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now you may be thinking, how is that gracious? Telling people that they're sinners, that they're excluded from the kingdom of God. But this is entirely gracious. Instead of leaving us wallowing in our sin and handing us over to our eventual doom of death and hell, God diagnoses our problem and tells us the truth about ourselves in order that we may see and receive what he has graciously done for us in Jesus. See, grace and truth are not opposites. They come as a package In grace, God tells us the truth about ourselves and the truth about Jesus. He's like a doctor who tells us that we've been diagnosed with a deadly disease but in the same breath tells us that it is completely treatable with a 100% success rate. The treatment for our sin is the cross of Jesus. Christmas is meaningless, it's pointless without Easter. He came into this world not to teach us how to love but to love us by taking upon himself the penalty that the law demands. A few years ago I felt I was being gracious when I took on the demerit points on my licence that my children had incurred by driving my car. But that's nothing compared to what Jesus has done for us at the cross. This was the very purpose for which he was born, in order that he might die for sinners like me and you. So, you see, we can't really celebrate Christmas fully unless we're also prepared to celebrate Easter fully. So God is worthy of our trust because he's told us the truth about ourselves and knowing that truth he has still poured out his lavish grace upon us.
Fifthly, verse 18, God is worthy of our trust because he has not held anything back from us. This verse says no one has ever seen God. Well, the Bible has lots of stories about people seeing God, but it's very clear in these stories that what they see is a representation of God or a very limited revelation of him. If any of us were to actually see God for who he is in his entirety, our heads would explode because a limited creature's mind cannot grasp an infinite creator. That's why the Bible calls God invisible, not because there's nothing of God to see, but because our limited and our sinful minds and hearts cannot see him. But look at the gracious, generous love of God to us, that he's allowed himself to be seen and known in a way that we can comprehend, in a way that's approachable, that's seeable, that's touchable, embodied in a human being. See what John, the same writer, says in one of his letters, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You may have seen the advertising billboards with an ad directed to potential advertisers, unsee this, meaning it's in a spot that's impossible for it not to be seen by those who drive past. This is like what has happened in Jesus. Once you see him for who he is, not merely a teacher, not a prophet, not a political radical, but God in flesh dwelling among us in order to die for us, then you cannot unsee him and all that he makes known to us, God himself. Think for a moment what that means. This is not about a religion or a philosophy or a self-help program. This is about coming into relationship with your creator. It's about coming from death into life, from darkness into light, from ignorance into the knowledge of God's grace and truth. Jesus is the man you cannot ignore because he alone will bring you to the God that you cannot ignore. In a moment we're going to sing the song O Holy Night to conclude our service. And this song concludes with these words, Come then to him who lies within the manger. With joyful shepherds proclaim him as Lord. Let not the promised son remain a stranger. In reverent worship make Christ your adored. Eternal life is theirs who would receive him. With grace and peace their lives he will adorn.